Coming up, as we inch closer to the end of the NBA and NHL seasons, the playoff picture in both sports are starting to come into focus. Could the Lakers and Celtics be a part of the play-in tournament? Will this finally be the year for the Toronto Maple Leafs? Russell Westbrook's triple-double dominance. Is it a record to cherish or one to forget? Fallout from the New York Rangers' Tom Wilson incident from last week. The NFL schedule releases upon us. I'll look into my crystal ball to see what we could possibly expect in 2021. The latest in Major League Baseball, including not one but two no-hitters in a three-day span. And have we seen the last of future Hall of Famer Albert Pujols? Plus, the Kentucky Derby winner is in some hot water, which will put a huge damper on the upcoming Preakness and the horse racing season on a whole. I'll take a deep dive on all the above and much more, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I can flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, and credible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, wherever you may be. Want to send a happy belated Mother's Day to all the moms who were spoiled and pampered yesterday and deservedly so. From the bottom of my heart to all the moms that are listening, happy Mother's Day. Wishing you many, many more to come. And not only to the moms, but also to the dads, grandparents, Brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, whomever it may be, thank you for stopping by to listen to everything that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. 
For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 193 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, May the 10th, in the year of our Lord 2021. Just want to send a quick shout out to my guy, Kevin Christopher, also known as Kev the Viking fan, who is a very good friend of the podcast. He turns 51 today. So enjoy your day, my G. Wishing you many, many more to come. And now on to my J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect around this podcast is as follows. The NHL season is complete. Well, for some. Now that the makeup games need to take place between now and the middle of next week, we'll see where we stand as far as the playoffs go. The big storyline heading into the postseason will be the Toronto Maple Leafs as they look to finally lift Lord Stanley's Cup above their heads for the first time in 54 years as the playoffs will commence sometime probably the weekend after next. I'll get into all the latest NHL races and what's happening with the makeup games as well as the association as they head into their final week of the regular season with both the Lakers and Celtics set to be a part of the playing tournament. Now, who would have thought that? But we'll see if they'll play in a do-or-die scenario sometime in the middle of next week. And where do you stand with Russell Westbrook on the brink of breaking Oscar Robertson's all-time record for triple doubles? Is it noteworthy or is it a complete afterthought? I'll break that down for you later on. The 2021 NFL schedule will be released on Wednesday. I'll predict what the opening matchup will be and the highly anticipated showdown as Tom Brady goes to Foxborough for the first time as an opponent. Also, the latest with Aaron Rodgers. Do I really have to get into that? As if you heard last week, you know I didn't really share too much. I'll share a little bit here, but really not much to add. We'll touch on that later on. And also... With word getting out over the weekend that Derby winner Medina Spirit tested positive for an anti-inflammatory steroid, what does this mean for the upcoming Preakness on Saturday? I'll have all of that and then some plus my hero and zero of the week. But with the winter sports getting ready to make the turn to the postseason and begin the quest for the next champion in both the NHL and NBA, I figured to give baseball the lead into the podcast today because there are a few things that I like to highlight as by this time next week, most teams will have played a quarter of their season. Can you believe that? 25% is almost in the books already. Now, Memorial Day will be here three weeks from today. And because it's late this year, being on the 31st, July 4th will be here in a blink. And then before you know it, it'll be Labor Day. So not to come off as depressing, we're witnessing history a little bit too much over the first six weeks of the season and a possible departure in another So I'll get to Albert Pujols' start before I even get to the no-hitters because when we look at the career of a one Albert Pujols and we don't know whether or not he will be signed here in the coming days or even weeks and you would think that if he does sign it's probably going to be with an American League team knowing that he's pretty much relegated to a DH. Can he play first base at the age of 41? I'm sure he can, but he's not going to sign with a National League team in that regard. It's already been said that the Cardinals won't re-sign him. I mean, think about it. They already have Paul Goldschmidt as their first baseman, so there's no way that the Cardinals will look there. Or even Tony La Russa, his old manager with the St. Louis Cardinals, now a member of the Chicago White Sox. He said that the possibility of signing the future Hall of Famer is going to be nil. Remember, they have Jose Abreu as their first baseman in the south side of Chicago. But with Pujols probably in his final stages of his career, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim released him last week. It was a tough decision for Artie Moreno and company, knowing what he's meant to that 
organization over the last 10 years and that he will not finish out his contract, which would expire at the end of this year. So who knows what the future holds for Pujols. And you would think right now, there isn't going to be a team out there that's going to sign him unless a team that not only needs a first baseman, but if a first baseman gets hurt over the course of the next week or in the weeks to come, that they may look at the famed number five slugger and take a chance on him for lightning in a bottle for one last strike to see if that team, whether it's a team that's in contention or a team that's looking to become a contender from a pretender, could give him that extra boost as far as not only some lineup presence, because even though he was batting below the Mendoza line, but he did hit five home runs and have 14 RBIs in the time that he was in Anaheim for the first five weeks of the season. So he may be able to provide a little bit of a spark, but what is that going to be as far as the longevity or the long-term of this regular season? It's unbeknownst to all of us. And for Pujols, when you look at his career, it's not only a lock first ballot Hall of Famer, but you marvel more the first part of his career than the second because after he won his second World Series in St. Louis at the end of the 2011 season where the Cardinals beat the Texas Rangers in dramatic fashion, of course, the famed Game 6 with David Freeze's heroics there at the end to propel them to a Game 7 and, of course, the Cardinals winning their second World Series over the course of five years in that time period from 2006 to 2011. When we take a look at the Angel career, it certainly pales in comparison to what he did in St. Louis. And that's the tough part because I'm sure if you gave Albert Pujols some true serum, he probably would have stayed in St. Louis and had the whole trajectory of his career playing in one city as opposed to him leaving to play on the West Coast. And let's face it, have a less than stellar and certainly underperformed the contract that he signed back in 2011. Now we know about his offensive prowess and what he did in St. Louis. Here was a guy that was in the top five of the MVP balloting of the National League nine times where he finished in first place three times, second place four times, third place twice, and fourth place once. And in one year he was actually ninth which I think was 2007. So the start of his career where he hit over 440 home runs, he was batting somewhere in the vicinity of 315, all the RBIs, the hardware, the World Series victories. The guy had just a tremendous start to his career where he compiled 10 straight seasons of at least 30 and 100, batting 300 with 100 runs scored. Now it wasn't until I believe one year he had 99 RBIs, which was his last year in St. Louis. And he may have had one year where he did only score 99 runs in one year. I'd have to go back and check. But for a guy to land in the top five, not top 10, top five in MVP balloting nine times, he could have gone to the Hall of Fame in roller skates at that point. Now, Pujols did have some decent years in Anaheim, playing for the Angels, but again, they were decent. They weren't anything close to the Hall of Fame numbers that he put up in St. Louis. And now we got to wonder where his next step will be 
We all know it's going to end up in Cooperstown. Now, is there going to be some baseball life left in his bat, his glove, and his cleats for some team to pick him up here over the course of the next couple of months, we'll say. And right now, it doesn't look like it'll bode well, considering a lot of teams are pretty much entrenched with their rosters, and not a lot of teams are going to look to make moves unless an injury does occur, as I mentioned. But I wanted to start off giving Albert Pujols his just due because the next guy on that rung will be Miguel Cabrera. And Cabrera was another great dominant right-handed hitter of his generation. But Pujols was probably just a smidge better, especially for that 10-year frame in St. Louis. But Cabrera doesn't take a backseat to anybody, even to Pujols. Although Pujols, I believe, had more power numbers than Cabrera, but... Cabrera was a much more steadier hitter and as we know won a triple crown back in 2012 but it's not about Cabrera now it's about Pujols and when we have these legends of the game in their waning moments of their baseball career what better way to start than to give him his props and everything that he's done and the likes of one that we probably won't ever see again a one Jose Alberto Pujols And we'll keep an eye on where he may end up here if he does end up somewhere else to provide a little punch and maybe some leadership in a locker room that's looking to get them over the hump or even some respectability to possibly a postseason berth down the road. But the other note this week were the not one but two no-hitters that took place. One in Seattle and then the other one Friday in Cleveland. To where we had two guys, one who's an up-and-coming pitcher and one who's been a journeyman. And we'll start with the one in Seattle where Baltimore left-hander John Means in a no-hitter in Seattle, 11 strikeouts, a near-perfect game because I believe in the third inning of that game he struck out, can't remember who the batter was, forgive me, but he registered a strikeout but it was a pass ball that went to the backstop, the runner reached first base. So therefore, it wasn't a perfect game. But considering he did not allow a base hit, obviously, did not allow a walk or hit batsman, to have it done that way, to be that close from a perfecto, John Means certainly gets a lot of credit for what he's done and what he did in that game. He's by far the anchor of that Baltimore Orioles staff. So congratulations to him. And then 48 hours later, you had a guy in Wade Miley who's been on a million different teams throw a no-hitter for the Cincinnati Reds against the Cleveland Indians for the second time this year where the Indians were no-hit. Remember earlier in the year, Carlos Rodon threw a almost a near-perfect game in his regard. Remember, he hit a batsman with one out in the ninth inning of that game. But the Indians now no-hit twice over the course of the first six weeks of the season to go on top of Joe Musgrave. And his no-hitter against the Texas Rangers down in Arlington for the San Diego Padres. Which then raises the question. What in the hell is going on here with Major League Baseball to where we have four no-hitters over the first 30-some-odd games of the season to where we have to think, is a no-hitter not special anymore? Now we know the perfecto, the perfect game, is one that's happened 23 times in the history of the sport where now we've had well over 300 no-hitters in Major League Baseball history. But it 
made me think that after Wade Miley threw the no-hitter Friday night, not only is the no-hitter special, and of course it's going to mean something. It's still a remarkable achievement. It's still something that's going to be historic because it's rarely seen. But now you have to wonder, how many more no-hitters are we going to see this year? If you look at it, we're probably on pace for about 13 or 14 no-hitters this year, which would, I'm sure, be record-breaking. I'd have to go back in the history books to figure that out or to decipher all that. But the crazy thing is, is that you have to wonder why have there been so many no-hitters, especially to start off the season, than ever before. And I kind of hate to put the blame on this, but if there's one thing that you could target, it's probably the stupid analytics of the game. You know how I feel about that. With all the shifts and the launch angle and not being able to hit the ball the other way or even try to lay down a bunt because half of the players or probably 90% of the players don't know how to lay down a bunt anymore. And that's what I think of as the primary reason as to why we're seeing more no-hitters in this day and age because the analytics is saying shoot for the moon or if you strike out, that's fine. The emphasis on spraying the ball to all fields, the emphasis on putting the bat on the ball seems like a lost art. It's all about launch angle. It's all about the exit velocity. It's all about home runs. It's not about situational hitting. It's not about trying to get a bunt for a base hit. Everything is boom or bust, which is one of the big reasons as to why the sport is trending south over the last few years. And not only to the old and crusty guy like myself, but obviously to the youth. Because in this fast break, PlayStation, microwave world that we live in, everything at your fingertips, who the hell wants to watch a baseball game for three and a half hours with pitching changes and even in the case with the no-hitters where there's not a lot of action offensively, these kids, their attention span is in the blink of an eye. So when you have a scenario where you have four pitchers throw no-hitters, and not to knock them, and they're in the major leagues for a reason, but it's not as if Walker Bueller, Trevor Bauer, Jacob DeGrom, Garrett Cole, it's not as if these guys are throwing the no-hitters. You have non-household names, journeyman pitchers, guys that you never even heard of that are going ahead and completing these nine-inning masterpieces in their own right to the tune of no hits. But when you never heard of these guys, how could you, as I like to say, wrap your arms around the sport or around these players when you wouldn't even know who they are if they fell on you? Now, that's a whole other issue to get into as far as baseball promoting their game, etc. But I find that to be one of the big reasons as to why we're seeing a lot of these no-hitters. Now, I'm sure there's a lot more to it. You can't say that the dominant pitcher, as the aforementioned pitchers that I mentioned, the guys you usually see amongst the top of the Cy Young Award finalists year in and year out. But I don't know. Tell me otherwise. Is it something else? Is this something that I'm not seeing? Something that I'm missing? I think this is one of the reasons how the analytics are screwing up the sport. Because the hitters are just swinging for the fences. And they're not just trying to get on base or not trying to produce in a way where they could hit the ball the other way. 
or these batters always hit into the shift. They're always pulling. And it's just a sad sight to see. As a lifelong baseball fan, and for those who do or do not know, baseball is my first love. So we'll see if these no-hitters continue to sprout up throughout the course of the year because what else can you blame it on? I understand you can look at the lineups of these teams, the Indians. I mean, the Indians do have a guy in Jose Ramirez who has been a finalist for the MVP the last couple of years. And I understand he's the only guy in that lineup that could be dangerous or you may want to pitch around if you go up against the Cleveland Indians. But still, to see so many no-hitters so early on, it's just, it makes you shake your head. And I attribute it to what's happening in the press box or in the luxury box with the GM and the analytics crew coming up with ways to try to reinvent the sport where they should just leave it alone. It was fine for 110 years before you guys got your fingerprints all over it. So that's that deal. I don't want to get any deeper or further into that. So let me get back to what's happening on the field and... You had a very interesting week from a lot of different angles. I know the Astros coming into Yankee Stadium last week with the Yankee fan was tremendous. For the 10,000 that was there, it sounded like 100,000. And they harassed the Astros all night long in the first two games until Jose Altuve struck in the final game as they salvaged the three-game set where the Yankees won two out of three. And the Yankees actually bounced back nicely in the homestand after losing the game against the Astros there Thursday afternoon. They got bombarded there Friday night by the Nationals and then recovered after Max Scherzer struck out 14 Yankees and left with a 2-1 lead in the 8th inning. The Yankees came back, won that game, and then won yesterday on a walk-off by Giancarlo Stanton. So the Yankees have righted the ship there in the American League East, although they still trail the Red Sox, who are three games ahead of them. But the Dodgers are still the big story where... They have gone from bad to worse. Last week, we talked about it briefly after losing three out of four to Milwaukee and two out of three to the Chicago Cubs. They continue to skid out of control to where they've now lost 15 out of 20 after starting their year 13 and two. We know no Cody Bellinger in the lineup. Who knows when he's going to return? You had Dustin May, who's done for the year with Tommy John surgery as they have to reconstruct his right elbow. No definitive closer on the roster, which is a big problem for a Dodger team, as we've seen even in the postseason a little bit last year. Now, they did win the World Series, but with Kenley Jansen, and you have to worry about his health with the irregular heartbeat, although he has been in the lineup and not the same pitcher that he was as far as his velocity goes from years past. And then Mookie Betts, who's starting to come around a little bit, but he's been struggling and slumping after that 13-2 and start. You got to wonder where the Dodgers and their mettle and their toughness, if they're going to be able to rally the troops here and try to get themselves back on the winning track as they've been bumbling, stumbling, and fumbling here for the last three weeks. So that's one to look at in in an NL West, which has been pretty competitive here with the Giants in first place and the Padres not doing too well either, but those three teams are lumped together so far this early part of the spring and you got to wonder whether the Dodgers will be able to put it in overdrive to get themselves back to the top of the NL West where they feel they belong considering they've won eight straight National League West championships and as we turn our attention from the NL West to the NL East look out now but here come the New York Mets believe it or not where 
early last week, they had to deal with Jacob DeGrom not starting in the game on Sunday due to his lat and bookend from last Sunday to this Sunday where he pitched yesterday, five innings, one run, one hit ball, although he did walk three, struck out six, but had to leave the game with that tightness in his right side. We hope it's, as a Met fan, it's nothing serious. When I think of lats, I think of what happened with Noah Syndergaard a few years ago down in Washington. And if you remember, that was at the end of April and we didn't see him until mid-September. So Met fans are holding their collective breaths right now, including yours truly, to hope that Jacob DeGrom comes out on the other side of this 100% as healthy as he possibly can be because we all know if he goes down, and the funny thing is the Met pitching has been very good this year, including their bullpen, which has been an absolute shock. And their bullpen saved the day for all the other times that they've foiled Jacob DeGrom starts in the past, and we've talked about that just a couple of weeks ago when he had that start against the Marlins, where he had eight innings of 14 strikeout ball, but he left one nothing and it ended up losing 3 nothing. They were able to secure a victory for him yesterday, sweeping them out of City Field, and everything that happened in between, whether that meant firing their hitting coaches, in particular Chili Davis, as being the culprit for the mess leading up to the dismissal of both of those guys. It was Chili Davis and the assistant batting coach. Usually that stuff doesn't really work, but considering since then they've won five of six, so you want to chalk it up to that? I won't. But then you had the incident Friday night where the Mets were down 4-2. Francisco Lindor hits a big two-run homer in the eighth inning, his first home run at City Field, but it was overshadowed by the fracas in the dugout or in the tunnel leading up to the clubhouse where you had... Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil squabble about whether it was a rat or a raccoon that was running around down in the bowels of City Field. Lindor says it's a rat. McNeil said it was a raccoon. Who cares? I know a lot of people thought, including the GM Zach Scott, said that, oh, it took away from the great win that we had. Uh, It's no big deal. I mean, give me a break. I could see if it was more of a fight in the locker room or fight in the clubhouse or even in the tunnel. Obviously, that wasn't the case in the post game there, even on Saturday night, the day after Lindor came and gave Jeff McNeil a big hug. So, if there were any thoughts about some love being lost between the middle infield, that's not the case. And as I said, the bullpen has been fine. The starting pitching has been well. David Peterson, I know, has been up and down, but Taiwan Walker has been very solid here. To start off his Met career. So is Marcus Stroman. I know he's been hot and cold. But Stroman overall has been above average. I will say he's been slightly above average. And Stroman will get the start tomorrow against the Orioles as they come to town. So the Mets at 16-13 and and have a lot of games to be made up here. But they're in first place right now in the NL East. So that's looking pretty good if you're a Met fan. But we're all keeping our eyes on Jacob DeGrom and what that injury means. And we all know that without him, oof, it's going to be tough sledding for this team moving forward. And as we get into the home stretch, as far as the Major League Baseball segment goes, the Kansas City Royals have taken a little bit of a nosedive here. And we've talked about how the Royals have played well to start off this season. Now they've lost eight in a row. And although they're three and a half games back in a tightly contested AL Central, you wonder if the Royals, where a lot of people thought they were going to improve this year, maybe not make it to the postseason, but certainly be north of 81 games and maybe in the mix 
for a wild card spot. They've hit the skids here, and you wonder if we'll ever hear from them from here on out. Uh, not that it's all about the Royals here, but just teams that have gotten off to good starts that have now come back down to earth. But other than that, everything pretty much looks status quo, if you ask me. We talked about the AL East with the Yankees and Red Sox, and the Yankees and Rays will lock horns again here this coming week. As a matter of fact, you have both New York teams will be in Tampa, where the Yankees will have a four-game set in Tampa starting tonight, and then the Mets will show up over the weekend So New York will invade Tampa here over the next week. The Central has the White Sox and Indians separated by a game. Then the West, Oakland, who got up to that tremendous start and then they started to fade here a little bit, but they've righted the ship and hold just a one game leading the loss, but two over the Astros right now and the Mariners are hanging in as well as the Texas Rangers. We talked about the Dodgers and their foils and what's going on there being three games behind the Giants in the loss and sandwiched in between of the Padres and then the Cardinals right now with the top spot sweeping Colorado as Nolan Arenado hit a home run against his former club yesterday and disposing of his former team. And then you have the Brewers, the Cubs, and then Reds and Pirates round out the NL Central. And that's pretty much what you have at baseball. I figured I want to get them on the beam here to start off before we get to the NBA, NHL, and set up the stage for the postseason that lies ahead. But a couple other things before I move on. For the Blue Jay fan, they'll be going back to Buffalo starting June 1st. They've been playing their first couple of months here in Dunedin where they train during spring training. So for those who are in that neck of the woods, we'll see the Blue Jays here for another eh, three weeks before they move to Buffalo. Because as we know right now, no restrictions have been lifted in Canada as far as the U.S. teams or even people from the U.S. going into Canada. We all know about the quarantine where you have to sit out. I believe it's still 14 days north of the border. So they'll be right at the border in Buffalo or at least outside of it. So the Jays will go back to their home and where they played last year, all their home games in 2020. And that pretty much does it for your baseball, I believe. Let me see as I look through. Yeah, that's pretty much your news and notes there. So we got Pujols, you got the no-hitter theory, which you believe it, or at least does it sound plausible to you? I think it does. And then obviously as we go through the leagues there with both the National American, we pretty much bring you up to speed with what's happening there. Now, I'm going to turn my attention to the NBA because as we approach the final week of the year and we have the races that look pretty much set in the East and the West, not necessarily with seedings, of course, but who would have thought that at the beginning of the year that both the Lakers and Celtics will be pretty much not fighting for their playoff lives, but fighting for their playoff lives, not being part of the playing tournament, that if you fall between the 7th 8th, ninth, and 10th seed, you don't have a one-and-done scenario, but for all intents and purposes, you're playing for your lives, because if you're the Lakers, as we've chronicled throughout, with Anthony Davis on the shelf for nine weeks, and him coming back, not really playing up to his all-NBA self until yesterday, where he finally broke out with a 42.12 rebound performance against the Suns, which was a much-needed victory after losing in Portland, on Friday, where the Trailblazers have the season series edge against the Lakers if it happens to fall into a tiebreaker scenario. But the Lakers 
going into this final week where their schedule isn't really intimidating, and we'll get to that in a second, but you have to wonder whether or not the Lakers will make it, whether as a six seed or a seven seed, where they'll have a one-game playoff in the likelihood against the Golden State Warriors, or if they happen to overtake the Trailblazers in the standings where they'll just have to sit and be comfortable after the playing tournament and play whomever the three seed will be. And that right now is looking as if it will be the Los Angeles Clippers. But with the Lakers, I want to say this. Anthony Davis came out just yesterday and said that playing for the playing tournament has become fun. That it is a difficult challenge knowing that they're at the bottom rung of the West. But unlike his teammate, LeBron James, as we talked about last week, him saying that the person who came up with this scenario needs to be fired, Anthony Davis is embracing it. Now, I don't think that's an anti-LeBron retort by any stretch. I kind of like it that he looks at it as a challenge and he looks at it as fun as opposed to just kind of saying, oh, well, it is what it is and we just have to fight through it. We'll make it to the postseason, just downplaying everything. So that was a little refreshing on Davis's part to come out in that regard. But as we look at the upcoming week for the Lakers, they have a situation where they can overtake Portland when we look at the schedule as they have the Knicks tomorrow night and the Knicks beat the Clippers yesterday as they're spending the early part of the week in LA. So the Knicks, they have a lot to play for. They want to get that four seed to host in the first round of the playoffs. But then they have the Rockets after that and the Rockets have been dead team walking for quite some time before going on the road over the course of the final two games at Indiana and at New Orleans. Now, New Orleans is on the outside looking in, and I'll get to them in a moment. And Indiana, they're at the bottom of that 7-10 through bracket, which I'll touch on in the East momentarily. So their schedule is a lot easier than Portland, where they'll have to face Houston, chances are a victory, then Utah, Phoenix, and Denver to close out their season. So if the... Lakers go 4-0 while the Blazers play 500 they will have the 6th seed and wait for the actual tournament to begin after the play-in so Lakers have their work cut out easy schedule Knicks won't be easy you would think that they're at home and maybe with the Anthony Davis train rolling right now after his performance against the Suns yesterday maybe that will propel them to a victory tomorrow, and then you got Houston in the two road games. We'll see how it shakes down. But right now, the Lakers are that team that will host in the first round of the playing tournament. And again, when we look at the NBA standings, and we'll start out West before we talk about the Celtics, because that's the next team I want to get to. The Lakers are currently 38-30, and three games ahead of the Golden State Warriors. But that could change because the Memphis Grizzlies are a half game behind the Warriors. They're actually even in the loss column. And I have to check the schedule to see if Memphis and Golden State play because that would be pivotal. And then you have San Antonio, two games behind the Grizzlies and a game and a half ahead of the Pelicans for the final spot in the West. And the Pelicans, who lost Zion Williamson for the rest of this year with a fractured left, I believe, ring finger. And the vice president of basketball operations, David Griffin, of the Pelicans, 
was fined $50,000 for comments critical to the officiating, saying that they're to blame for Zion's finger being broken, talking about how he has not seen a player get hacked so much since Shaquille O'Neal. I haven't watched all the Pelicans games, so I don't know, but we know how much of a specimen that Zion Williamson is. So obviously he's backing up his player. He's doing whatever it takes to maybe lay off a little pressure on the Pelicans over the course of these last five games or four games or so as they conclude their season. But the Pelicans aren't going to make it. I'd be shocked if the Spurs just go right into the tank here because the Spurs have a lot of pride. We know the coaches on that team and the culture and everything that they have manifested over the years. So I can't see that falling apart right now. But when we look at the final week here between Memphis and Golden State to see if they do play as we close out this NBA season, the Grizzlies actually do have a final visit to Golden State this coming Sunday, which could be for that eighth seed. So if you're the Lakers, who knows? You may be hosting either Memphis or Golden State. Chances are you probably want to host Memphis, Golden State, even though they're a far cry from their championship selves. But with Steph Curry, you never know. He may have a 60-point game in him. And if Anthony Davis isn't back and LeBron isn't going to be at 100% come that final game of the season and you think they're going to hold him out, that could mean that the Lakers could be in a do-or-die scenario if they do lose that game. Because remember, the 7-8, the winner of that gets the 7 seed. The loser then plays the winner of the 9-10. And then obviously, whoever wins that will have, be your 8 seed in the conference. And I'm going to say this about the Lakers. I'm a little bit worried about them. As you know, high ankle sprains, they rarely heal in a short amount of time. And we know that LeBron has been indestructible. It's almost as if he's been from another planet. But even this ankle injury where he played in those two games last week against Sacramento and Toronto in losses, I might add, and him now being put back on the shelf, you wonder if this little respite here, is it going to be enough for him to be close to, if not at 100%, to then make the long trek through the Western Conference to make it into an NBA final and then defend their title come mid-July? I'm really starting to think that if he's not going to be 100% and he's going to be hobbling and not playing the minutes that he's going to be needed here for this time of the year, I don't think the Lakers are going to win. Now that ankle could be taped up, shot up, whatever. And as we've seen Davis, he has not been great, notwithstanding last night, throughout his return. But I'm starting to think that the Lakers' run here could be short-lived in the postseason. Now I'm not going to put any money on that. But I will say that there is some doubt as to whether or not they're going to be able to defend their title and have a long postseason run in them. I'm going to say that. Now, let's see where we're at in about 10 days from now when we can handicap this postseason and if they do have to compete in the playing tournament because that's also a huge factor. Because having to play in those games or even just one of those games is less of a day's rest that they'll have going into the postseason. And God forbid if they were to lose that game and then have to play the winner of the 9-10 game, that also throws another log to their fire. So we'll certainly keep an eye on that as we're down to our precious few as far as games go. 
And then to turn my attention to the East and the Celtics, I'm at a loss for words when it comes to this team. We know this team is underachieved. I don't want to hear about the COVID early on this year, and I get that it plays into the effect of the health and running up and down the court a million times, as we heard with Jason Tatum in the middle of the season saying that COVID had still affected him, and who knows if it affects him now. And then you had the situation with Evan Fournier, who had 30 points in the game there yesterday against the Miami Heat in a loss, I might add, and I'll get to that in a minute, but with the issues with the health, and COVID, and suspensions, and behavior, and slow starts. Again, another game where they pretty much mailed in until they tried to ferociously come back against the Heat yesterday. Now, the final was 130-24, to but it wasn't as close as as it was indicated. You got to wonder whether or not this coach is going to survive this. I think he's going to, but next year is going to be the year for one Brad Stevens. Because the effort from this team this year has been lackluster. And we understand Jalen Brown is out of the lineup with the sprained ankle that he suffered in that collision with Jason Tatum in the game against the Portland Trailblazers there a week ago yesterday. But again, you got to play through these injuries. And just because you get off to these slow starts and come back and make the game close, no more victories. What does that mean? Nothing. And even Brad Stevens came out and said that I have to do a better job of leading this team out of the gate to make sure that we don't get so far behind in these first halves. Well, yeah, how about it? Bad enough they had to come back from 33 against the Spurs, but you're not going to do that on a night-in-night-out basis. It's almost as if when is this team going to wake up? And I don't think this team is going to be long for a postseason, even if they, chances are, they're going to end up being the seven. so let's get right to it. They beat Miami early this year. They had the Heat coming in yesterday, and they also have a game with them tomorrow, which is pretty much their season, let's face it. Because right now, they're two games behind them in the standings for the sixth seed. I don't think they're going to make it. Their schedule is pretty soft. They're playing Cleveland and also Minnesota, as well as the Knicks in the final game of the season. And the Knicks may not need the game, but you would think the Knicks will want to do whatever it takes to keep the Celtics in that seventh seed. I don't know if the players will have that type of mentality. Maybe the coach does. Tom Thibodeau was a former Celtic assistant. But with the Celtics right now, I have very little faith in this team. I don't expect them to go far. Even if they play the Hornets in the first round or in the first go-around of the playing tournament, do I feel confident that they could win? Listen, if they can't beat the Hornets in the first round or in that first game, uh, it's not going to look well or look good for them whether it's in the 9-10 game or whomever they face after that. I don't know. I mean, what if the Celtics get swept here? So let's say they make it to the postseason and now they're a 7 seed and they go up against the Brooklyn Nets or even the Bucks for that matter. And they get swept or embarrassed in 5. What happens with Brad Stevens then? Does he come back? Is there the vote of confidence from Danny Ainge? I can't answer that, but would I be surprised that there's going to be a little bit of a hot seat or murmurs coming out of Boston where Brad Stevens' job is in jeopardy. I would not be surprised. We just have to wait and see. And Ainge is going to face a big offseason, but I'm not going to talk about that now. We'll get to that later on. So the 7-10 to scenario in the East, Celtics, two-game lead over the Hornets. They should be fine there, you would think. Then you have the Wizards and Pacers. The Bulls are two and a half games behind, three in a loss. You don't have to worry about that. So that's going to be your 7-10 to scenario in the East. 
The Sixers, they're going to have the top seed based on their eight-game winning streak now. So you have your one, two, three almost set because the Bucks are tied in the loss with the Nets right now at 24 losses. Bucks have a game in hand, so we'll see how that unfolds over the course of the next seven days. And then you have Knicks, Hawks. Hawks are a game behind them, but the Knicks have the season series advantage, so they should be fine. And then you have the Heat to round out the East. I didn't talk about the West as far as the top goals. I'll go to that quickly before I talk about Russell Westbrook. Utah and Phoenix. Now, Phoenix, for whatever the reason, had not played well here. Remember, they were tied in first place just as early as last Monday, but now the Jazz have won five in a row, have a two-game lead over the Suns. Now, mind you, if the Jazz and Suns do end up tied, Phoenix swept them this year, so they will have the one seed, but it looks like the Jazz will have the top spot in the West. I talked about the Clippers at three, which would be scary, and I know that Adam Silver and everybody down there on Fifth Avenue and the NBA offices, they are getting ready to choke on their kale salads if the Lakers become the sixth seed. I'm sure they want to have them at the seven because it adds more intrigue and more drama to the postseason for them to play in that 7-8 game. And I would think they would want to see them go up against Golden State. So with the Lakers, then with Denver and Dallas as your four and five, which would be a very good first round series. And then Dallas, you have to worry about Luka now because although he got ejected with a flagrant two yesterday, he's not going to get a suspension. He is one game away from being suspended or one ejection away or one uh, technical foul from being suspended. And that goes into the postseason. So that's not one of those things that if he does get into the tournament and then has to, let's say, gets a technical or gets thrown out of a game, he's going to have to serve a suspension based on the accumulation of those technicals and suspensions. So that's something that the Maverick fans going to have to look out for. And then we talked about Portland at the six. So that's what you have here in the Eastern and Western Conference, just days away from the end of a long NBA season, which started on December 22nd, and it's about to finally come to a close here this coming Sunday. And then the one team... In the Washington Wizards, where Russell Westbrook, and I need to get to this real quick, is because he is just tied Saturday night with Oscar Robertson, the big O, for all-time triple-doubles in the history of the league. And we know what he's done here, MVPs, he's averaged now, I think this is the fourth year in the last five, or third in the last four, where he's averaged a triple-double. And that's, of course, points, rebounds, and assists. But it does beg the question, For a guy who's going to go to the Hall of Fame, for a guy who is one of the top players in the league, but you got to wonder, will he even be All-NBA third team this year? Or will somebody even elect him? You would think he probably will. I don't even think he'll make All-NBA as far as first team goes. We'll see, but we know the record is legit, and you would think he's going to pass it at some point between now and Sunday, but for all of his offensive prowess and for all of his competitiveness and just his athleticism on a whole freakish amongst the top players in the league but when it's all said and done does this record really mean anything at the end of the day because when you look at the triple doubles and you look at what Magic Johnson has done even Larry Bird from the time that they played even Jason Kidd for all the triple doubles but we know that those guys are champions And it's sad that we have to 
kind of look at some of these records that are held in high esteem throughout the league and its history. But if Russell Westbrook never gets to that NBA mountaintop, granted as a player he has with the MVP award, but for him not to win a title, are you going to look at Russell Westbrook as a player that, wow, not only was a guy that had these numbers year in and year out, but did he really make his other teammates better? I mean, did he really make Paul George better during his last couple of years at Oklahoma City? Or P.J. Tucker, Eric Gordon in Houston for the one year? Or Bradley Beal this year? I mean, Beal was great to begin with, even without Westbrook. And P.J. Tucker, maybe his game was taken to another level with Westbrook there, but again, he had Harden next to him. Or even Oklahoma City with Paul George? I think, if you ask me, and I like Westbrook as a player, competitor, etc. He's not a clutch player. Let's start there. He's not a guy that you could trust in the fourth quarter. I'm going to say that right off the bat. And we've seen that throughout time. All you got to do is look at game six and seven against Golden State in the 2016 Western Conference Finals for starters. But he's a guy that's not really made his teammates better. He's a guy that is pretty much about the numbers. And he may downplay it and say, oh, no, I just go out and compete and I don't care about the numbers, so on and so forth. To me, that's nonsense. Because this is what's going to be his legacy when you think about him at the end of his career. You're not going to think about him as a one-time or even a multiple champion. And his story's still yet to be written, but at the same time, it's been, what, 12 years and he's only been to an NBA final once. And chances are he's not going to get to an NBA final this year. He may make the postseason, but NBA finals, uh uh-uh. But you got to wonder, is this a record that should be held among one of the great accomplishments or achievements in this league? Or just an afterthought because of, ah, Russell Westbrook. He wasn't really a winner. He was a numbers guy. And if I'm all about the numbers, I can compile triple doubles. Especially in this day and age when you don't have to worry about being fouled at the perimeter or you don't have to worry about being mauled going to the basket for a rebound or having to box out or with the game and the way it's played where it's all about the three-pointers where he's able to get three or four easy rebounds a game. That pretty much will sum it up. And again, this is not to throw cold water on the record or on him for that matter, but let's call it as we see it. Well, at least as I see it. And we know the type of player he is. Go through a brick wall to win a game. But at the same time, does he make his teammates better? And is he all about the numbers? I think he is. I know that may not be a popular take amongst a lot of of the pundits and probably players throughout the league, but that's as accurate and as fair as a take as it possibly could get. Because from what I've seen, not only just this year, but over the course of his career, he's just been compiling these numbers. And he's been doing it dominantly. And it's not as if he's been skating by with these triple-doubles. It's not as if he's scoring 14, 11, and 10. Please, he had a 20-rebound or 24-rebound, 20-assist game on Monday. The only other player to do that in the league is Wilt. But again, he's Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt's one of the, arguably the, Top five players of all time. Russell Westbrook isn't even anywhere near that stratosphere. And that's my point. And one last thing before I turn my attention to the NHL 
kudos to Carmelo Anthony for becoming the 10th all-time scorer in NBA history as he surpassed Elvin Hayes on Monday versus Atlanta. 27,318 points, I think it is, and I'm sure he's added to that total since then, but to be ranked in the top 10 all-time in scoring, excellent job. And to think, over the last few years, he's had to do it off the bench. He hasn't started. Now, of course, he's not the same player that he once was in Denver and when he was with the Knicks, but still a remarkable milestone for him. So congratulations to Carmelo, and we'll see what Portland does here in the postseason, as I'm sure he's going to be a contributing factor to the success of the Blazers come playoff time. All right, now let's turn our attention to the ice. As strange as this is going to sound, the NHL season has completed, at least for some. It's weird with the schedule. As we know, a lot of teams had to deal with COVID early on, including the Canucks who are going to play games until the middle of next week, which a lot of people could argue, does it really matter considering that the Canucks are not going to make it to the postseason? They're currently in last place in the North Division and have to make up seven games in the process. And a lot of those games are against Calgary, a team that's not making it to the postseason as well because the Canadians have an eight-point lead over the Flames right now. And even though the Flames have two games in hand and the Canadians have two more games to go, but for all intents and purposes, it looks like those teams are going to be on the outside looking in. And speaking of the North, I'm going to start here with the Toronto Maple Leafs because they have a couple of games left, but they clinched their division. And it's weird because it's not in the typical division that would be in a normal NHL year because of COVID and them being the NHL North, if you want to call it, all the Canadian teams playing under one division. But now the Maple Leafs, who have their sights set on the postseason, and you have to wonder what is the psyche, not only of the team, but of the organization right now, knowing that they have as good of a chance to get to a Stanley Cup final than any of the other teams in their conference. And what I mean by that is because there's not really an East and West this year, but you know that the team that's going to come out not only of that division, but you would think out of that conference and to play against what looks like it's going to be either whomever comes out of the division that's in the Central or the East, Toronto has as good as a shot as any. And if you're in the Toronto area or in the province of Ontario, I am sure they are jumping up and down ecstatic knowing that the chances of them getting to a Stanley Cup are looking good. But we've seen time after time with these organizations and these teams always falling short or having a bad bounce of the puck or a soft goal given up. All you got to do is look back two years ago with the Tampa Bay Lightning, them winning over 60 games, President Cup trophy, etc. And what happened? They got swept out of the first round of the playoffs to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Now, if that would happen this year, geez, you'd have to think that the Maple Leafs will never sniff a Stanley Cup final as long as we're all alive on this planet. But as a hockey fan going back many years, and even though that's waned throughout, and I'm going to get to a little bit of that in a bit, but knowing the history of the Leafs and their tradition runs deep in this league, nobody's going to confuse them with the Montreal Canadiens when it comes to cup 
victories, and they're going through their own drought, I might add, but 54 years, and that's a magic number that a lot of people here in the New York metropolitan area that fans are familiar with because that's how long it took between drinks out of the cup for Ranger fans from 1940 to 1994. Well, maybe that will bode well, and the mojo and juju from that drought will permeate up north for the Maple Leafs. Again, it all remains to be seen, but that's the one team I'm going to look at here to see how well they do. And we know about the offensive firepower they have. We talked about it time after time, led by former Islander captain John Tavares. We know about Austin Matthews, Michael Nylander, down the line, you name it. So I understand for the 13 hockey fans that are listening to this and probably for the one Maple Leaf fan, and that would be Robin Kelly, my former classmate of Coral Springs High School down in Florida back in the 80s, if she's listening. I know that they're going to be rooting, hollering, and hooting for the Cups to just get to a final first before they could even celebrate a victory. Because obviously you got to get there. And I'm hoping, other than the Islanders, for the Maple Leafs to get it. I'm going to say that now. We know the playoffs haven't started. It's still about... You would think the weekend after this one coming because the regular season does end a week from this Thursday. So you would think that with Calgary and Vancouver playing out the string that they may start the Stanley Cup Finals there Saturday, Sunday. You would think. And right now, with the way the standings are, we'll start from the top. The Central... You already have your four teams that have secured their spots. That's Carolina, Florida, Tampa, and Nashville. Now, though the Panthers have played well down the stretch here, winning five in a row, and Spencer Knight has actually been very good in net. The 20-year-old who is pretty much, I'm not going to say taking the league by storm, but is going to be your future net miner there for the Panthers down the road. But the Hurricanes look like they're going to be the top seed. And I'll take a look at the schedule here in a moment, but... With just one game remaining between the three teams, right now they've pretty much set themselves up to where they'll play the Nashville Predators in the first round, and then you're going to have the Battle of Florida, which should be very interesting to see who's going to come out of that Tampa-Florida series. I wonder if there'll be a little old-time hockey, which would be great, uh, with a lot of fisticuffs and some penalty minutes strewn about the box score. But with that... Division pretty much intact. And then when you look at the East, where the Penguins right now have finished their season, but the Capitals, Bruins, and Islanders still have games to be played, including the Bruins and Islanders tonight, which is a huge game. Because the Islanders, if they win tonight, they will leapfrog over the Bruins and have the third spot in the division. But again, the Bruins still have another game in hand. We'll still play the Capitals after that. And that's also pivotal too, because... If the Bruins were to lose to the Capitals, pretty much they lose the next two games and the Islanders obviously would win their final matchup against the Bruins. They'll be the three seed and play the Capitals in the first round where the Bruins will play the Penguins. So we'll see how that unfolds here over the course of the next 48 hours. So those are huge games right off the bat. We talked about the North. Not much really to discuss. You would think that the Canadians, even with the two games in hand by the Flames, but they have an eight-point lead. And chances are they'll play the Maple Leafs in the first round. And that'll be a fascinating first round, as we talked about the Leafs, to go up against the other and most popular team north of the border. 
and obviously the most decorated team in the sport. So that could be a first round series. That'll be a fight to the finish. And then in the Western Division, the Golden Knights with a four point lead. They still have two games left where the Avalanche have three games, 76 points, a point ahead of the Minnesota Wild. And then the Blues were able to punch their ticket to be a four seed, 57 points over the Arizona Coyotes as Arizona has already finished their season. So the Blues are in good standing right now. Well behind Minnesota, but they'll play the Golden Knights, you would think, in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And we'll shore this all up next week. We would think that come a week from today, everything will pretty much be in place as far as predicting who's going to go where, what the playoff matchups will be. I'll do a preview at that time, and we'll go full bore as the Stanley Cup playoffs, you would think, will start that weekend, as I mentioned earlier. Now, the other thing I want to get to, well, two things. You already had some coaching changes or firings, as I should say, where in Arizona, Rick Tockett is out. He's done in Arizona, out in the desert. So, you know, a replacement will come shortly. And then John Tortorella, the same for Columbus, the fiery head coach of the Blue Jackets. He has exited stage left. And I'm sure he'll probably pop up somewhere. He's a guy that, I understand out is welcome, not only with his team, but also with the organization. But you would think Tortorella will resurface somewhere else. Remember, he was in Vancouver, of course, with the Rangers as he took them to the Cup in 2014. So you would think he's built up enough of a resume that he'll find another landing spot. So those are two of the coaches that have been out here at the end of this regular season. It's weird because the season has concluded for a lot of the teams, but as we talked about, there's still games to be played. But the one thing I want to get to is what happened last week between the Rangers and Capitals. And I talked about this for weeks on end, especially when it came to Capitals winger Tom Wilson. Now, last Monday at the Garden, they had back-to-back games at Madison Square Garden where the Capitals were visiting Monday and Wednesday. And on Monday night, he got into a skirmish in front of the net with Pavel Buchnevich to where he punched him with his gloves on. And then... During the melee, Artemi Panarin jumped on his back. They both fell to the ice. And then Wilson got up and started to not only throw Panarin to the ice, but also throw a couple of punches at him as well. To where he only received a $5,000 fine in the process. And we know about his track record early this year where he ran the defenseman of the Bruins, Brandon Carlo, to where he received a seven-game suspension. A lot of people thought a suspension was going to be on the horizon for Wilson after his display there Monday night, which I thought didn't warrant a suspension, uh, let's face it. And I'm not saying that because I'm pro-fighting and pro-violence in the NHL, but that didn't warrant, despite his reputation, didn't warrant a suspension. And you kind of wonder if the NHL knew what they were doing, knowing that there was another game to be played there on Wednesday, and I'll get to that in a second, but... $5,000 fine to where there was outrage amongst the Ranger brass that on Tuesday they came out with a statement saying that they were very disappointed about the result handed down by George Paros, the former tough guy himself of the Kings and Mighty Ducks amongst other teams that he handed down a fine instead of a suspension. So they were very disturbed, unhappy, disappointed, whatever you want to call it. 
based on the horrifying acts of violence, and I quote that, displayed by Tom Wilson, first off, it was not horrifying. It's not as if Wilson came off the bench, dropped the gloves, went at warp speed towards Buchnevich, Panarin, whomever, and then reared back and clocked the guy to where it looked like rock'em sock'em robots. It wasn't anything along the lines of that. So that was completely overstated. And then to only find out that the day before, or I should say the day of the second game, where John Davidson, the vice president of hockey operations and the GM, Jeff Gorton, were dismissed by owner Jim Dolan, which made you think, why did he dismiss them? Was it because of the statement that they put out, which he said that was not the case? But that was also fishy because Dolan was now doing Dolan things, which he usually does with the Knicks, but now he's doing it with the Rangers, which made it even that much more puzzling because he's pretty much left the Rangers alone throughout his tenure as owner of the Garden, the Knicks, the Rangers, etc. And then now, all of a sudden, he wanted to throw his weight around to get these guys out of here, for whatever the reason, and it hasn't been explained to this day. And then to make matters worse, the league handed down a $250,000 fine to the Rangers for the comments that were made, the horrifying acts of violence, among other things that were said. So now Dolan was hitting the pocketbook with that, and then the lead up to the game itself, one second into the game, six players, three fights. Wilson then ends up fighting Brandon Smith, who nobody's going to confuse or be confused with Colton Orr or Nick Fatiu or anybody of that ilk. But I give it up for Smith for sticking up for his team and his players, etc. And Tom Wilson, all right, got that out of the way. And then you had two more fights after that. So... You had this big giant Donnybrook and six fights within the opening five minutes of the game where I was completely blindsided. I didn't even think that was going to happen. And now to go back to where the NHL, they probably figured that it wasn't worth giving a suspension based on not only the actions of Tom Wilson, but there weren't going to be any repercussions considering the way the league is now. There's not enough tough guys, whatever. Well, they dispelled that myth at least for one night. Now, granted, the fights were not great at all. And who am I to say that? Because although I am pro-violence and it was great to see, but yeah, nobody's going to put that in the annals of Craig Cox, Bob Probert, or Probert and Ty Domi, or Kevin McGuire, Shane Churla for the fight fan out there. And I can go through a whole list of them, but I don't want to bore the non-hockey fan with that. So you had these fights, you had all this take place, everybody was shocked. I was in just completely flabbergasted by the events that happened at the Garden. But at the end of the day, here's the problem with all this. For as much as it was good to see and Wilson got, I'm not going to say he got his just due or had to pay the piper because it's not as if he got pummeled to the ice by any stretch. But here's the problem. You have to bring back the enforcer in the NHL. That's all there is to it. Because the reason why Tom Wilson gets away with hits on Brandon Carlo, the reason why Tom Wilson gets away with rabbit punching Pavel Butchnevich on the ice or even tackling Panarin on the ice and punching him is because there's nobody on the other side that's going to come out and beat his brains in. Let's put it point blank. Nobody of the status, and I'm going way back, of Dave Brown, Bob Probert, Jay Miller, insert any big tough guy, Derek Bougard, George LaRock, anyone. Because 
if that guy existed on the other side of the bench, Tom Wilson would think twice about swinging, boarding, crashing, whatever. And it's not to say Tom Wilson can't handle himself. He can. But against the ilk of a heavyweight, a guy who is, his job is to just do one thing and one thing only well, and that's just to fight. He would not do that. And not only am I saying that amongst other guys who follow fighting and love fighting in the sport, they say the same thing. And I don't watch the NHL on a day in and day out basis, but I know the type of player that Tom Wilson is. And you could just see it a mile away. And right, if there was a Derek Bugard who used to play on the Rangers, 6'7", 260, however big he was, you think Tom Wilson's going to take shots at the Rangers star players knowing that that guy was going to come off the bench and <laughs> the next shift, he was going to have to face the music? Not a chance. So although the enforcer's not going to come back, and I posted this on a video you could check on my Instagram account or even my YouTube, J Reels, I'll mention at the end of the podcast. Yeah, as much as I enjoyed that, as much as it was a thrill, and even though the fights weren't anything to write home about, but we all know that we'll probably won't see that for another year at least. And we all know that the enforcer is not going to come back into the consciousness of the sport anytime soon. So I enjoyed it while it lasted, but now we must move on. And lastly, I also want to give props to Ryan Miller. I didn't mention this last week, so my apologies to him. The longtime goalie of the Sabres, also played in St. Louis, Vancouver, and then most recently of Anaheim, retiring as he goes off into the sunset with the most wins by an American-born goalie. He won a Vesna in the 2009-2010 season for best goalie in the league. So I want to give him his props as he heads off into retirement. And will he be a Hall of Famer? I haven't looked at it closely. Maybe at the end of the hockey season, I'll dive into it a little bit to see where he stacks in this generation, whether or not he is Hall of Fame worthy. But uh, happy retirement to a one Ryan Miller as he moves on to the next stage of his life. Now, let me get to these final two things before I say goodbye. And the first thing is the NFL with the schedule is going to be released here on Wednesday. I know it becomes this big giant event where ESPN, NFL Network has these two-hour shows, and that's been the case the last couple of years. Now, am I going to watch this? No, but I'm just going to come 8 o'clock, and you know part of the schedule is going to be leaked out if at early, maybe today, if not tomorrow. Certainly by Wednesday, you're going to hear some of the games that are going to be released. And I'm going to start off by saying this, and I said this before, and I'll say this one last time. I don't like the 17-game season. Why bother? We know the NFL just wants to line their pockets with more money. The players don't like it, especially the star players. And I don't like it. I just don't. I think it's going to not hurt the sport overall, but I won't be surprised that you may see another key injury or a key player out because of this extra game and the mentality. I just don't like it overall. I don't care what the NFL fan says to me as far as, oh, it's more football. That means it's better. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. I'm sorry. So I beg to differ when it comes to that. But when you look at the schedule, the two things that pop up, at least for me, and we can't predict where these games are going to be played, but you look at the opening night game that Thursday to kick off the season, and it's going to be in Tampa, as we all know. And when I looked at the opponents for the Buccaneers this year, and it's going to be the home opponents, and when I saw the star in the top left corner, I said, well, there's your opening game. 
I cannot see it being anything other than Dallas at Tampa to start off the NFL season. Now, I know they usually reserve the Cowboy game for the Sunday night. This past year, they didn't do that. They actually had Dallas at LA to open up SoFi Stadium. And then I believe the week after, Dallas had the Monday night game. I believe when they played the Giants, if I'm not mistaken. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see Dallas there. You're not going to see the Bears. If Breeze was still in New Orleans, you probably would see New Orleans there. But he's gone. So you can forget about that. You're not going to see Carolina. You're not going to see Atlanta. Even with Kyle Pitts, Julio Jones, and Matt Ryan there. I sincerely doubt that. Could you see the Giants there? Maybe. Maybe. But I, I just don't see it. It's not a sexy Thursday night matchup. And then the other possibility that you may see is Buffalo playing at Tampa. Now, I know CBS would like to have that game because usually the AFC team on the road, which is usually hosted on CBS, they'll play in Tampa. So you'll have Buffalo and Miami going on the road to play them. There is a possibility that you may see Buffalo in that spot. I see it as being Dallas, maybe New York. Those are going to be one of your three teams that are going to be in that Thursday night opening night slot. So if I had to put it in any type of order, I'm going to say Dallas, Buffalo, and then the Giants. And then, of course, the other game is where on the schedule do we see Tampa at New England? Because Brady's going to make his trip to Foxborough this year. Obviously, that's going to be the first game everybody's going to want to look at to see where it falls on the schedule. I hope that the schedule makers put them at least... Late October, early November. I'd rather see that game in the middle of the year. I don't want to see it at the beginning of the year or even at the end. It would be best if they put it somewhere in the middle. Because you don't want to put it too soon. Because you don't want to get it out of the way. You want to have there be some buildup. Even though it could be week one and there'll be a buildup. But that's not going to be the case this year. But having it in the middle of the season, if you ask me, I'm going to predict that it's going to be somewhere between... I'm going to say... October 15th and Thanksgiving. Now, it could be after that. You never know. Sometimes you get those interconference games late in the year. But I'm going to pick that time frame as to when Tampa is going to visit New England. And obviously, we don't know who the Thanksgiving Day matchups are. We know the games are going to be Detroit and Dallas as your 1230 and 4:15 game. Who knows what the night game is going to be? Your guess is as good as mine. Will Tampa maybe be a part of that? Thursday night mix. We know they have the first Thursday night game. So chances are they probably won't get another. But you never know. And that's all I could speculate right now. Because I can't tell you who's going to play where, what time, what day of the week, etc. Way too soon. But I'll get into it a little bit. Not only through social media. And I'll tell you where you can find me on social media at the end if you don't know already. Or... Next Monday, we'll talk about the NFL schedule. I'll just highlight some of the big games. You know, Thanksgiving, the Saturday games. Obviously, we don't know what those games are going to be. The Monday night schedule, Sunday, Thursday, etc. The Thursday night schedule is going to be bad. It always is bad. They'll probably sprinkle a couple of good games in there. But I I don't like the Thursday night schedule. I've never liked it. The games have been an abomination for the most part. But we'll certainly dive into it next week when the schedule is released this coming Wednesday. Quickly on Aaron Rodgers, not much more to discuss here. I know Brett Favre came out and said that his gut says Aaron Rodgers is going to be gone. 
His former teammate, the fullback John Kuhn, says that he's in a state of being conflicted for whatever that means. Even Richard Sherman, who came out and said that he's been disrespected. Uh, Where does all this come from? Why is he conflicted? Why is he disrespected? To me, Aaron Rodgers is looking for the NBA player empowerment move and is looking for the exits. And I kind of forgot about this as I was reminded earlier this week. At the end of the Tampa Green Bay NFC Championship game, if you remember in the post game, he had some very dubious and I want to say even cryptic comments when he came out and he said that a lot of the guys on the team, their future is uncertain, including myself. He is signed through 2023. Why would he include himself in that matter? Now, he could talk about, oh, it was emotional. I was at the end of a loss, long season, the game at home, whatever. But why would anybody tip their hand? Usually players are close to the vest when it comes to stuff like that, especially when they're free agents. And in this case, Rodgers is far from a free agent. And the Packers have said everything as far as Aaron Rodgers isn't going anywhere. So he has a ploy to try to get himself out of Green Bay. And I don't know how he's going to do it. And the sad part is, is that he doesn't have many teams to go to. What, maybe Denver? Maybe John Elway will bring him in? Or even the Raiders for that matter? Because Derek Carr, eh, you figure Aaron Rodgers could be that guy that could put the team over the top, even in a division where you have Patrick Mahomes there. But... He doesn't have many other options to go to. So to me, until there's some rumblings, until there's some potential on a Rodgers trade, because they're not going to release him. He's going to cost too much against the cap. They're going to have to take an enormous hit as far as dead money goes. I don't know how he's going to proceed here. I really don't. Maybe cooler heads prevail. He's going to come back. He's going to look like a horse's ass in the process, but... To me, this is just a waste of time even getting into it. Because there isn't anything more that I could add to it. Because it's not as if he's going anywhere. And even with the comments last week or during the draft about, oh, well, he's disgruntled. He wants out of Green Bay. All right, where's he going to go? And the Packers aren't willing to just throw him to the street for their own cap reasons, and rightfully so. And they're not going to trade him for a bag of footballs to Denver or Las Vegas or any other team. Two quickies. Alejandro Villanueva signs a two-year deal with Baltimore. I know he may have taken a jab there at Juju Smith-Schuster about TikTok. He doesn't have to worry about that anymore. Now, Villanueva was a borderline turnstile last year, so we know he's a huge man. 6'9", 280, served for our country. God bless him. But And they need help on their offensive line, as we know. Who knows what Ronnie Stanley, if he's going to be 100% coming back to start off the season, so... He goes to Baltimore, so that should be fast and furious in those two matchups against the Steelers next year. And then Zach Wilson saying all the right things in jet camp early on, saying that the position has to be earned. He doesn't expect to land a starting job, although the depth chart on the jet roster might as well have me there because they have two guys on the roster that I had never even heard of. So you would think it's going to be Wilson's job to lose, but they have to bring in some sort of veteran presence because Flacco took his talent or the last remaining bit of it down to Philadelphia to back up Jalen Hurts. So that's what you got there with the NFL. And then lastly, this deal with the Preakness and horse racing, which is has turned ugly here over the last couple of days because with the events and what happened with Medina Spirit, 
testing positive for elevated levels of an anti-inflammatory drug that he took prior to the Kentucky Derby in which he won and barely to Mandalone and Hot Rod Charlie where, let's talk about this for a second, Mandalone has already stated in their camp he's not going to race in the upcoming Preakness this Saturday as well as Essential Quality, who was the odds-on favorite to win the Derby. He's not going to race in the Preakness this week. Now we have to wait and see upon investigation on whether or not this is going to be upheld by the Horse Racing Association to remove Medina Spirit as the winner of the 2021 Kentucky Derby and then give it to the second-place winner who will now be Mandalorian. Or I say Mandalorian because I think of the... uh, (laughs) <laughs> the Star Wars show on Disney. Hopefully no copyright infringements there by me saying that. But Mandalone would be your winner. But you're going to have an anticlimactic preakness because even if Medina Spirit does win or ends up being a winner, you're not going to have these horses racing against Medina Spirit in the preakness. But then it's already tainted because he has this accusation that's going to hang over him for God knows how long. But then on top of that, let's say if they strip the title away from Medina Spirit, all right, Mandalone is victorious, but then now Mandalone's not going to race in the Preakness, so you got nothing come Saturday to begin with. So horse racing's in a quandary right here because if Medina Spirit does go ahead and race, and let's say he wins, now you have a tainted horse going into a Belmont as a potential Triple Crown winner. Or if you do happen to take away his champion at the Derby to put Mandalone there, but now you're going to have nobody racing against Mandalone because he's not going to the Preakness. So you have an out-and-out mess right now if you're horse racing. Who knows how long this investigation is going to take? You could get word by the end of the week. And if that's the case, who knows if there's going to be some rumblings or talking behind the scene whether or not they could bring Mandalone back. Or are they fully convicted to know that uh, we're not racing whether or not we do get the victory or not? Ah, what a mess. And now Bob Baffert, he's going to be banned from Churchill Downs as it is. And I guess, I don't know if that's a lifelong ban or just indefinite. And remember, he won his seventh as a trainer. Well, now it's possibly could be back to sixth because of this. And he says he's going to be transparent throughout this whole investigation. So... Let's see if that's the case. He says there are no wrongdoings, no ill will. He feels that he's clean and the horse is clean throughout. So we'll see if that comes out in the wash. If uh, not, it'll certainly come out in the rinse. But I tell you, it just takes a lot of starch out of the race here. And not that I was at the edge of my seat wondering whether or not Medina Spirit could be a Triple Crown winner. Based on what I talked about last week, I didn't think that they probably would make it to the Belmont as the Preakness and Kentucky Derby winner. But who knows? We may not even have Medina Spirit as your winner of the Kentucky Derby come this Saturday, let alone into the Belmont. So we'll have to iron and dissect it all once the word comes down. So we'll be sure to hear my take on that, whether on social media or after the Preakness when we reconvene next week. And then lastly, just to throw this in, Canelo Alvarez wins by TKO Saturday night against a guy I never even heard of, Billy Joe Saunders. If he fell on me, I wouldn't know who he is. In front of 73,000 
at AT&T Stadium in Dallas, which now overtook the Kentucky Derby as the most participated sport since COVID started. Remember, they had 51,000 at the Derby last week and now 73,000 here. Canelo, uh, I know he's a WBO champ. I don't know what else that means because, again, boxing is so far out of my realm right now that I can't even think straight when it comes to title fights or who holds which belt or what have you. But because it was at Jerry's place and it held almost 75,000, I thought that was newsworthy to bring up. So Canelo wins by TKO because Billy Joe Saunders, his left eye was swollen shut so they couldn't go out with the fight. So that's what you have there for the boxing fan. All right, now let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, and I have two of them, The first one is former NFL defensive end Brandon Bear. He played last decade for the Chiefs, Eagles, and Raiders. Saved a man who was involved in a wreck after it had been struck by a train in Idaho a few days ago. Now the car, which was already in flames, he was able to get to the car, actually pull the driver out from the back seat because of the way the car was, and the car was already up in flames at the time. So he's able to pull out the driver who's named Steve Jansen and luckily and thankfully by pulling him out of the car just seconds later, even maybe a minute later, the car exploded. So talk about a heroic act to say the least. My man Brandon Blair saved the day and saved his life. So great news there. And then I also want to honor three-time Indy winner or Indy 500 winner, excuse me, Bobby Unser who died at the age of 87 this past week due to natural causes. The Indy 500, which will take place three weeks from yesterday. A winner in 68, 75, and 81, winning in three decades. I think Rick Mears is the only other driver to win in three separate decades. I think he won in 77, uh, 86, and I think in 91. But Bobby Unser, a longtime ambassador of the sport, auto racing as we know it, as he... Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family. They are both Brandon Bear and Bobby Unser, my heroes of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Nationals TV commentator F.P. Santangelo for what else? An alleged sexual misconduct incident years ago who as of today has been released from the Masson Network. That's the network that broadcasts the Washington National Games, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. Uh, made an unwanted advance toward a woman, was told to stop several times. She came out in a bunch of Instagram posts or statements about it. Now, Santangelo did say that he's going to clear his name, but right now is out of a job and not looking well. And in the world we live in, in 2021, this is how it is, and that's how it's going to be. So, FP Santangelo, my guy, you are my zero of the week. And that'll do it. Episode 193 in the books. As I say each and every week, I appreciate you guys. I thank you for taking the time out to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. We know there are a ton of podcasts out there, and I'm sure that you could get your sports, and you probably do get your sports pod information from other guys, other hosts out there. But I, again, appreciate you stopping by. And if I could ask you for a small favor, as I said at the very top of this podcast, to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels Podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you know the platforms. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there so I could generate some guests and some interest for those who are the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the studio host, blogger, writer, whomever it may be, so they can share their experience with me so I can 
turn, share that with you guys on everything that's happened between the white lines, in the broadcast booth, in the press box, in the studio, with various entities and luminaries of sports. So if you could subscribe, rate, and review, I'd appreciate that. Leave a rating post as well. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, you could do so. Question, comment, criticism, praise, whatever it may be in my DMs or email by going to Instagram on JReels or the JReels podcast. On Twitter, JReels1, just a number. On Facebook, the JReels podcast fan page or the JReels podcast at gmail.com would be the email address. Be sure to hit me up. I'll follow up with you ASAP. And then if you want to support this podcast, the production, etc. of it all, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. Patreon, whatever you want to contribute, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate not only supporting the production of this podcast, the website, also the equipment, etc., as that will certainly go or not go, excuse me, unnoticed. Because whether you do or do not know, it's in the blood people, in the DNA. It is what I love to talk about, to share my opinions, thoughts, analysis on everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.